0: Morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Grant. If I haven't met you, I am one of the pastors on staff. Um, just want to give a special welcome to everyone here, especially if you're a guest joining us for the first time. Before we jump in, I do want to say a quick shout-out to Wheaton Academy soccer players. We've got some state champs in the house right there. All right. it was exciting stuff yesterday. Um, well, if you're like me, you've probably heard all week long that today is... Halloween. Uh, my kids have been reminding me every single day asking when we can do the pumpkins and the costumes and the treats and all this stuff. Um, so thanks for joining us on this special day in church history. <laughs> Obviously we know how Kelly feels about that day. Uh, he's a little bit of a downer, maybe not like the rest of us. If you don't know, I'm talking about uh, one of his last sermons on Revelation. He makes his uh, position abundantly clear. Uh, anyways, actually what I am talking about is October 31st marks the anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95th Theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Martin Luther was protesting the sale by the Catholic Church of indulgences or salvation, access to God for salvation, um, trading money and works for some kind of salvation. And what's fascinating is part of what Luther was addressing and protesting 504 years ago today are some of the same things, some similar ideas that John, the author of the letter in Revelation, says to the church in Sardis. I'll explain a little bit of that this morning. Have you ever known or interacted with somebody that couldn't stop living in their glory days? It's a kind of common trope in movies. The high school jock comes back to a class reunion, and he still thinks he's the big man on campus. Really, he just hasn't moved on with his life. In his mind, what he accomplished in the past gets him in the door. Meanwhile, everybody else is fully aware that they've taken steps forward. They see themselves in light of present day, their current careers, their modern accomplishments. When have you experienced something like that, a one-hit wonder? A person that's trading on the currency of their past successes. Failing to realize that their legacy isn't cemented in a moment or a few successful activities. How might this be true even in our Christian lives? Are we as individuals, maybe more importantly, are we as a community leaning on our history with God more than we should be? Have we been on the sidelines of faith? stepping out of the arena and into the stands. I share this message because the sidelines is not what God has for us. In fact, you're in danger when you're sitting there. As a person, I don't tend towards alarmism, so I'm not speaking light-heartedly when I offer this warning. But I believe some of the people in this room Some of the folks watching are in danger and need to hear a warning. You need somebody out of their compassion for you to say, you may be unknowingly walking in a direction that does not end well for you. Now I picked the Church of Sardis, the location that I was going to preach about, and I'm aware that part of this message might feel a little bit down. But as you listen today, I want to encourage you to remember that we also know the end of the story, what happens in Revelation 21 and 22, the glory of Jesus' return and victory, the new heavens and the new earth. But to get to that end of the story and all the joy that is promised, we have to plumb the depths of the journey. So this morning we're offered a caution, but married to that caution is certainly the promise of hope. Now I believe that God is calling us not just in a general all-Christian sense but specifically I believe he's calling out to the congregation that makes up Glen Ellen Bible Church to be a witness for him and reject all the alternatives to him. This morning God wants to offer his assurances of eternity. He invites us to join him in his victory. So listen with me to the words that are penned in Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God." I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The first thing that John wants the listeners to clearly understand is that Christ is the one sending a message to the church. These are the words of Jesus, who is complete, who has all power and all authority. Now, we should take comfort in the reality that Christ knows his people distinctly. And just as he is unique words for each of the seven churches, including Sardis, Jesus differentiates this congregation, the one at 501 Hillside, from the churches across the street or down the road. Our successes and our sins, they're different. And Jesus will speak to and care for us differently. That should be an encouragement to us that we're not just a number in a giant collection of Christians. We're a people that uniquely matter to God. And he will speak and care for us in the specific ways that we need it. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Strengthen what still remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Jesus simply begins by denoting that he's familiar with how people perceive the church in Sardis. To many, this place looks like one that's bearing fruit. In the modern day, that may mean something like healthy balance sheets, catchy preaching, maybe a slick website. Those things aren't bad, but Jesus knows what's at the core, and he can discern what's real and what's fake. What he sees in Sardis is a church that has grown silent and been corrupted. At my now infamous West Chicago house, there was a peach tree in the backyard. Each year, the tree would grow leaves, but I never saw peaches on it. There was just old peach pits in the surrounding mulch. Now, I figured the reason that we weren't seeing peaches was probably the fact that we live in Chicago and not Georgia. Maybe frost keeps killing things off. One day I was outside and I was working in the yard and taking a break. I rested my hand on the tree and I guess put more weight on it than I should have and it cracked open and out of the inside, ants just poured out. It was actually a really disgusting moment. I was glad my kids weren't around. Avoid kind of a freak out. You see, something appeared to be alive on the outside of the tree but inside was rotting away, unnoticed. Jesus compares The church to one that's fallen asleep at the wheel. With his authority, he commands them to wake up, stop coasting. Reputation is not part of the equation that Jesus is most concerned with. Maybe you've seen on your documents, your uh, 401ks or your IRAs, as you prepare for retirement, the phrase, past performance is no guarantee of future results. That same idea is true here. The reputation of the church, their past actions, don't mean that they're walking with Jesus. The words are reminiscent of the promise that Paul writes in Ephesians 5. He says, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In essence, don't be a one hit wonder. This begs the question what are the conditions of the dead church? How would we know if we were alive or dead? Throughout the book of Revelation, John details that a dead church is one characterized by people who have quieted their witness to Christ and his gospel, especially in the face of cultural resistance and persecution. These churches, the people that make them up, have adopted sinful beliefs, habits as part of their regular everyday life. And if you ask me in a truly honest moment, I would tell you that I think some of us, are at risk of the exact same thing. Many of us say we're Christians, that we're convinced of our need for the gospel. But if someone saw the whole of our life, they'd probably note that's not the complete picture. See, I cannot commit to being married to my wife, Laura, and simultaneously say yes to romance with others. It is both a yes to her and a regular and strict no to all others. This is what Jesus requires of his bride, the church, what he requires of all of us. We must say yes to his gospel and a resounding no to all other invitations. A church that is alive is one that stands up straight, committing herself to the outworking of the gospel. To witness and stand strong in the face of culture, it does not mean us sitting in our churches and condemning the outsider. Now certainly we can disagree with the trends of culture, but people outside the church often hear us like the Pharisee who stood alone praying loudly, God, thank you that I'm not like one of those sinners. People who haven't experienced the transformation, the love that exists in the gospel, can't be expected to live according to Jesus' commands, however good and true they certainly are. Witnessing to the gospel means the people who call themselves Christians must be a clear and shining light of how life is changed when we submit ourselves to the sanctification of Jesus. We display how radically we can love, how chaste we can remain sexually, how caring and sacrificial we are for the people that we might even consider our enemies. That we use our freedoms in Christ to fight for the oppressed instead of just drink a few extra beers on a Friday night. See, a witness is living as if whatever we lose in this life will be made up for in the next. That's what it means to resist the pressures of non-Christians or the sinful demands of culture. There's one other thing I think witnessing means. See, it's discouraging to me when I talk to friends and family, those who are skeptical of the church, They point to the levels of sin and corruption they've seen inside the church. All the while, we make sure that we've loudly condemned the culture around us and failed to ever affirm what they're doing well. Instead instead of acknowledging our sin and doing this hard internal work of repentance in our community, we've often settled for giving lip service to the Jesus way. Then we go on living indistinguishable, from everybody else. The extreme language used in the letter, that of death and resurrection, sleeping and waking, it should stir our emotions. I tend to use extreme terms when I want somebody to take me seriously, to respond to me. Jesus is telling this church that what they've been called to is not yet complete. There is more work to be done. Now that term work when we're talking about the gospel and Jesus, it tends to be a touchy subject. Martin Luther, the man I referenced at the beginning of the sermon, the father of the Reformation, influenced the Protestant church by cementing the theology that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. And that heritage, it often causes us to recoil at the suggestion of work in our faith. I think Martin Luther was absolutely right. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. However, what I'm suggesting is that work is the necessary evidence that we have been saved. Now, this analogy goes better before Teslas and all these electric cars, but just like the exhaust is evidence that your car engine is running, if you believe your engine is running, but there's no exhaust, you've likely got a problem. If the car is running as intended, there is an inevitable byproduct of exhaust. Jesus' work in us produces an overflow of good work from our lives. It is the outcome, the inevitable outcome, evidence of his ongoing saving, his ongoing sanctifying in our lives. The other day, my family was at the Taco Bell drive through Before you judge me too much, I wasn't feeding everybody in the car Taco Bell. I was just getting it for myself. Uh, as we're waiting for the delicious Cheesy Gordita Crunches to be made, my son Tucker did what kids seem to have an amazing knack for. He took a seemingly mundane moment and somehow touched on the deeper complexities of life. From the back seat of my truck, he spoke up and said, Dad, I'm trying hard to be perfect. I'm not going to do bad things. I want to be perfect for God. And in our great parenting wisdom, Laura and I thoroughly fumbled the ball. We didn't know how to respond properly. You see, on the one hand, I love that Tucker wants to be obedient to Jesus. But on the other hand, I know perfection is impossible on this side of life. And I don't want him misunderstanding how his life will unfold certainly doesn't need to carry the weight of perfectionism that his mother and I have spent years trying to wrestle ourselves free from. It wasn't until writing the sermon that I realized how I need to coach Tucker on this. Jesus gives us a clue right here. You see, in Sardis, the work for many has come to a standstill. They started, but they've left it unfinished. Jesus knows that the church has drifted They've forgotten what's at the core of the gospel message. Now, there's still life and potential in the church. What is dead can still be made alive by Christ. This is shown for us in the story of the prodigal son. When the runaway son returns to the father, he says, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. For the sleeping and the lost, those of us who have wavered in our witness, our current state is not permanent. There is a promise of hope and victory still available to us. For those of us confused about the reasons for actions, or maybe we're asleep, or maybe we're trying to let our actions contribute to earning God's love. We see John Wright, remember what you received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. In short, what I need to say to Tucker is, actually what we should all hear, is run to Jesus, son. In him you'll be made whole. Submit yourself to his love. And as you fall in love with him and you follow his commands, he will make you a new man. If you find yourself asleep. Wake up. Remember your former spiritual vitality, how deeply moved you were when you first heard the gospel. If you stopped caring, stir your affections and begin living in light of that gospel once again. Remember your first love by repenting from your apathy and your sins here's the thing, I can't rely on my wedding day 11 years ago to be the ultimate demonstration of my marriage to Laura. The vows and the ceremony, they were certainly a necessary component. But marriage, by its definition, is an ongoing relationship that requires investment and care and tending to. And in the same fashion, being a Christian is not just a prayer at Bible camp or going to a Christian college Or having a moment where you respond and kind of temporarily are moved by Jesus. We must continue to cling to Jesus and his promises, submitting ourselves to his commands and his invitations. Now, if we choose to ignore these words and this warning, Jesus' arrival will feel unexpected, just like a thief in the middle of the night. He'll judge us for our apathy. The people in Sardis, they were especially sensitive to somebody telling them that they were not alert or that somebody would surprise them. The city, it was located high up on a citadel. These mountain walls protected it. However, twice in their history, because the lookouts, charged with keeping the city safe, assumed that they were for sure safe, they began to fall asleep, and a single individual was able to secretly scale a hidden crevice. They opened the gates from within and allowed an enemy army to enter, destroy the people who were wholly unprepared. So after this happening two times, the need for being alert and resisting fatigue was woven into the cultural DNA. Similarly, we should hear this warning. Don't believe the lies that sin is fun to be dabbled with and can and we can simultaneously maintain our commitment to Jesus. As we heed the warning, let's avoid the pains of judgment and the apathy that we carry. God is calling out to us in love to wake up and to return to him. Now, a sermon on judgment isn't the easiest one to prepare for, but we see that judgment is intended to bring reconciliation between God and his people. When we respond to the warning, we don't have to go through the pains that could certainly come to us in the future. That future is not all doom and gloom. In fact, I find great comfort in Jesus' words here. For those who have been moved to cling to Jesus, there's an assurance of their salvation and eternity with him. He offers a promise that nothing can separate them, saying, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy the one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I'll never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Sold clothes are the equivalent of a compromised witness. Are you quieting or compromising your witness for Jesus? Maybe it's not explicit. Maybe you've accidentally fallen victim to the belief that money or a promotion at work, a bigger house, the next vacation, successful kids, are worth your primary energy and primary concerns. Those things are the best that life has to offer. I'll take it a little bit further and maybe press on a bruise. If the people that you regularly meet with Come into contact with your neighbors, your coworkers. If they know more about your posture towards masks and vaccines and politics than they do about the way that Jesus has transformed your life, you're in real danger of fitting this category. Now, politics, money, jobs, success none of those things are wrong. I think they're gifts from God but they'll absolutely fall short of saving you. And they should not be our primary concern, our primary pursuit, or our primary witness to the world around us. There are some who have clung to the promise of Jesus' complete sufficiency and have not fallen asleep. Now, they aren't perfect in life, but they believe in the perfect work of Jesus. As a result, they've stood firm in the face of opposition I bet you can think of a few people in this room who have modeled that for you. I'm looking out in these chairs, and I see some of the faces of people who have done that. People who have run the race well and kept the faith. When they sin, they repent and return to Jesus. And these folks, they all have one thing in common. They look to Jesus for their victory. Later in the book of Revelation, John tells us that the people who possess white robes didn't maintain perfection through their own efforts. In fact, their robes were made white by washing them in the blood of Jesus, meaning they received the gospel, and despite their sin, they accepted Christ's offer of grace and were considered righteous. They cling to their relationship with him. Their lives stand out in comparison to the rest of the world. They are a bright light in a world of darkness. The community in Sardis it had a practice of keeping track of the names of all the locals. Now, if you disgraced yourself in some fashion, your name would be removed from the ledger so nobody could associate you with the history of that community and tarnish their legacy. That's how people thought about membership. And in response to this expectation, Jesus takes special effort to assure the listeners that they will not be blotted out like that from the book of life. The names written there will remain, and Jesus will acknowledge each of these people before God the Father. You can be assured that despite the challenges you face, if Jesus has saved you, nothing can separate you from him. Now, being stirred from our sleep, it can sometimes be a little bit unsettling. If I'm napping at the house, as I'm prone to do on Sundays, somebody wakes me up, most of the time I'm a little bit irritated by it. But if we were driving together, and I'm behind the wheel and you notice that I'm falling asleep, I'm not mad when you wake me up. The words in the scripture are telling us that we are driving and must wake up. We cannot risk falling asleep in our witness. If you feel worried and find yourself wavering, if you're having trouble rejecting the allure of power or security or money or something else, call out to Jesus. This morning, repent from trusting in the promises of what is certainly temporary and ask the Spirit to wake up what's sleeping in you. Ask Him to make you a light in what is dark. Yesterday, as I was praying for this morning and thinking about my sermon, I was reminded of Jonah, more specifically the response of the Ninevites to Jonah's prophecy. You see, Jonah showed up to Nineveh eventually, and he warned the people that God's condemnation was coming because of their wickedness and their evil. And as the people began to respond and the king heard Jonah's message, he made a declaration that they would be fasting and mourning and all wear sackcloth that maybe if they called out to God and clung to his promises of repentance, that he wouldn't punish them, that judgment wouldn't come. God relents from sending calamity. The Ninevites have shown us an example of the proper response to Jesus' warnings. Some of you, you're alert in your faith. You're witnessing to the gospel of Jesus. You're rejecting sin and the parts of culture that deny Jesus. You should find encouragement this morning. Assurance. God sees you and promises that what you lose in this life, you will receive and experience victory for in the next. I hope you feel comforted by this, by the assurance of salvation and the encouragement to continue running the race to its completion. But if you find yourself unmoved by God's Spirit this morning, unfazed, I'll admit my heart feels heavy for you because I think you're headed towards judgment and loss. Indifference to Jesus' warning can only bring death and destruction. If you think of yourself as a Christian but have coldness to Jesus' words, you're likely not saved. You might claim the name of Jesus, but I don't think Jesus can claim your name. You've fallen victim to some self-deceit. Those are strong words, but I hope they stir you, that you would come to your senses before it's too late, that you'd give those strong consideration because God's compassion is waiting for you. If you've never before responded to Jesus calling in your life, or if you feel like you've wavered in your witness and walking with him, maybe you've been asleep, let me remind you that victory is available to you today because Jesus was victorious. He conquered sin and death so that you could be united to your Father God and he eagerly welcomes you. Romans 10 assures us that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you want to be saved this morning, Voice that to God. Don't let any amount of sin or shame or guilt or fear keep you from expressing what the Spirit is doing inside of you. That God is calling you. Pray to him and tell God that you need his gift of salvation. That you want to reject the lies that eternal victory could be found in anything other than Jesus. Repent of your sins and cling to this gospel. This morning, I have three concrete responses for us, things I want to encourage you to participate in. The first one is, in a few moments, we'll close with two songs. And it's our practice to have people up front to pray, so if anything from the message or if Jesus has spoken to you today, if you feel God calling you to wake up in your faith, come forward and let Mark or Sue Luso pray with you. I want to encourage you to take a step out of your physical seat. Don't let fear or apprehension or the unknown keep you planted there. Because what you do in this room is practice for the witness you carry outside these walls. And second, if you're the parent of an elementary-age child, when we start singing our closing song, I want you actually to go downstairs to pray with your child. Our elementary-age children have been giving special focus in Sunday school on how they're uniquely made in the image of God. We want to support you in that important work of witnessing to your children by praying over them to become all that God has made them to be. And finally, I want us to think about our collective witness as a church. Glenelg Bible Church is almost 80 years old, and over the last decade, the leadership at the church has felt God's challenge to avoid simply coasting on our legacy. We want to actively depend on Jesus and proclaim his goodness. And this year, as God has cared for us, we have sensed his calling to take a next step. We intend to launch a second campus. So we've got a short video that will play in just a moment that explains this vision. Collectively, The invitation is to refuse to be caught sleeping. Now is the time to go out and continue our witness in this county, proclaiming the good news of Jesus by exercising our faith. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your victory. Jesus, I'm so grateful that nothing can separate us from you, that you strengthen us to hold fast to your calling. God, for those of us who have fallen asleep or wavered in our faith, I pray that you would stir in us a fresh commitment, that we would be responsive to your invitations. God, I pray that the people who make up Glen Ellen Bible Church are known as a bright and shining light in the world around us, that our highest priority and our highest commitments are to a lost and dying world. That instead of a people who want to look and judge others, God, that folks know us as people who love deeply, who give away our money, who care about the people surrounding us. Jesus, I'm so grateful for your love. I'm grateful that you came and rescued us. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.